This is Lorraine and welcome to Cafe Curiosity, a podcast about experience and discovery. We're back after a few weeks off for the Easter holiday, feeling refreshed and ready to go. Over the next three episodes, we'll be looking at stories with focus on the roles we play linked to traditional African beliefs and a bit of the spirit world. Today's story is The Grave Diggers of Machine, written by Nyasili Atetwe, a Kenyan writer based in Nairobi. His mediums of expression include fiction, photography, and film, and his short film, A Winter of Goodbyes, is available on YouTube. Grave Diggers of Machine spoke to me because it is set in a household where Hannah, the wife, is the breadwinner and wants her husband, Luca, to get back into a respectable job. While for Luca, he's found meaning and perhaps self-worth as the leader of the village's gang of grave diggers. There is an interesting twist at the end, so, you know, listen in for that. And I wonder if there is a better life for Hannah and Luca after this incident. Enjoy. And now, The Grave Diggers of Machine by Nyasili Atetwe. It was now three months since the last burial happened in Machine Village. Luca was penniless but somewhat happy. Some evenings he staggered back home drunk and instead of stony silences, Hannah received him calmly and asked if he would eat. The other day, she even asked him what he thought about their crumbling cowshed and who was the best fundi to repair it. This never happened. It sweetened his heart, but he knew it would only last until some death occurred in the village. Hannah wanted the best for Luca, for her own sake. She hoped to occupy him with something respectable and meaningful before the next villager died. She had a cooking job offer at Machine Primary School where she worked as a teacher. The job had been open for weeks now, specifically waiting for Luca. It was the best she could offer. She couldn't get him back where he was financially when they married. Many things had happened in between, including a stint in jail after losing his senior accountant job. He then returned home and found solace at Mangele's place, where Changa Brew became his diet of hope. The cooking job would be a game changer. She preferred the wife of a cook better than the wife of a grave digger. That was what people now called her. As they sat around the dinner table one evening, Luca smiling at anyone and anything with his breath reeking of Changa, Hannah laid before him ugali and fried ants, his favorite meal. The headmaster said he is keeping the job for you. When are you starting? She said. Time was running out and the job would not wait for him forever. Luca had cleared his plate and was now picking his teeth with his tongue. You want me to come and cook for school children? He smiled, shaking his head. Before she answered, he picked his dark Panasonic radio from the table. He had turned it to full blast, but the dying cells only emitted moderate volume. 
Pongo Love was on the chorus of Ndaya and seemed to follow him as he strode into the bedroom. That is your father, Hannah turned to Kasali and Gade, who sat across the table wiping their plates with lumps of ugali. If he comes, people will laugh at me. I don't want that, Kasali said. Hannah scoffed at Kasali's teenage pride. Just like your father, you only think of yourselves, Hannah said. I want him to come, Gade said. We will eat more at lunch, isn't it, Mum? Isn't he also just thinking about himself? Kasali glared at Hannah. It couldn't be selfish coming from a five-year-old. Hannah smiled and patted Gade's head. Hannah ordered the children to go to sleep after Kasali cleared the table. They retreated to their bedroom, which doubled up as the kitchen. She remained alone, seated at the table in the sitting room. She sat facing the bolted door and giving her back to their bedroom, where Luca's radio was now wheezing because of the powerless batteries. On her right was the open doorway into the children's room, and she had to order them to turn off the lamp and stop chatting before she had the silence she needed. She had exam papers to mark that night and wanted to finish doing so before she turned in. But for a while, her mind couldn't get into it. Her thoughts lingered on her man. The disgrace he had become. The other day, Mama Ambaka, a neighbor, had come to her whispering, You know what Mama Amali said? Perhaps I shouldn't tell you. You already started. Finish, Hannah demanded. Or are you trying to annoy me? She said, This grave digging business must be paying her man well. And then asked, You saw the yellow yellow dress she came wearing to our last meeting? Mama Ambaka mimicked their absent friend's strained soprano. She said that? Hannah asked, stewing. Those were her words. I told her no. With your salary, what can't you afford? People are jealous, I tell you. A few hours after Mama Ambaka had gone, Mama Amali visited. That Mama Ambaka laughs with you, but be careful. She was asking, how can a whole teacher share a bed with someone that never takes baths for days? Hannah could have folded Mama Amali like an ironed dress and packed her away with a few slaps. She sulked, but let it pass. The thought of it rankled her even now. For long, her friends taunted her so she would leave Luca. With her salary, she could fend for her children without much struggle. But leaving Luca scared her. People would say she left him because she had money, because she wanted the freedom to become a prostitute. She wouldn't let them have the last laugh. The children were now snoring and Luca's radio was dead. The chirp of the crickets outside filled the moment with a stirring silence. She scratched at a pimple-like swelling growing on her thigh next to the entrance of her other world beyond. The sweet scratch drew her mind to the boil, which was no different from Luca, choosing to grow here to embarrass her, and soon she would not be able to walk before people with pride. But the boil was better than Luca because it had a known cure. The chemist has given her antibiotics that would stop its spread to other tissues in the body. Now her urine smelled of the antibiotic, a smell she likened to the promise of healing. If Luca was a boil, 
She would swallow all antibiotics in the world to cure herself of the shame he had brought her. Someone knocked as she buttoned up her skirt. She glanced at the time on her phone. It was 10.20. It is who? she asked. Tenje, bellowed a low, garrulous voice. Tenje was one of Luca's four-man grave-digging gang. To Hannah, they were a gang. At 39, with no eyes for women, machine people joked that Tenje's thorn could not prick. Go away, Hannah snapped. We took our supper long ago. Is Baba Gade there? Maiko interjected dryly. He is the one we want. Maiko too was of the grave-digging gang. He was a stump of a man with an elephantine temper. He caught fire as quickly as dry kindling and was always getting himself in fights, always losing his teeth. Who has died? Hannah stopped short of asking. The two couldn't be looking for Luca that late to go buy him a drink, but there had been no screams to announce a death. Go away or I'll shout thief, Tenje laughed. Hannah glared at the door helplessly. The men would not leave until they woke up Luca. Unknown to her, Luca was already out of bed. He coughed from the bedroom and said, Open for them. There is no door that is being opened here, Hannah thundered with some sense of finality. Luca knew better than to start a mouth battle with her. He soon strode across the dimly lit room and opened the door. A burst of cold air gushed in, instantly chilling Hannah. I'm freezing, Hannah snapped. Luca stepped outside and pulled the door shut. She then heard their footsteps and heavy, jovial voices recede in the night. Luca must have been waiting for them, judging from his swift response after they had knocked. Hopefully, another grave-digging job had not come up, but she would have known, even if the death was in the next village. Perhaps he thought that she was still on her periods. The way he had been touching her the past few days, only to reach down there and find her padded up. Poor boy. But today she was good to go and was looking forward to it. He helped her complete the fantasies about her colleague, Mr. Mbati, who loved ogling her every opportunity he got. Mr. Mbati was a handsome bachelor, but no, she wouldn't trade Luca with anyone. She was relieved when he returned in the morning, enveloped in fumes of changa and soaking in dew. At least they had just gone to cut down their thirst, not to dig some grave somewhere. She was wrong. The next morning, while she was in the staff room scribbling notes for her next class, Mr. Mbati came to greet her at her desk. One of our pupils have lost their parents, he said, though his gaze was dead frozen on Hannah's chest. Which one? Mbakaya, you know him? The son of Nyanji. Who has died? His mother. Lord, Adisa is dead? When did it happen? Yesterday evening? Hannah gazed into space, and when Mr. Mbati told her that she looked great in her chiffon top, she just nodded absent-mindedly. Later in the evening, Mama Mbaka told her what had happened. Adisa had died of pneumonia in a store at the backyard of their homestead where she lived with her three children after Nyanji had married a second wife. When she died, Nyanji had ordered no one to cry. With Adisa dead, a job had opened up for Luca and his gang. Digging graves and burying the dead was not everyone's job. 
The graves were dug at night at a spot preferred by the bereaved family. Luca and his gang hollowed the ground with hoes and shovels. They worked by the faint orange brightness of a lantern, singing and smoking until a rectangular box caved beneath their feet, dark and six feet deep. The song and smoke kept them going because this was not a hole for people to come and shit in, but one where someone would be put to rot for eternity. For songs, they had Moale, their soloist, whom Luca referred to as voice number 10. His changa-soaked tenor would crack a Luhuya gospel tune, and the rest joined in a babbling chorus. Once through with the digging, they were handed a chicken, which they slaughtered at the graveside, as custom dictated, and roasted instead of frying. They were the only ones allowed to eat the roast. In case the deceased family was rich and not very Christian, the roast was accompanied by liquor, which they imbibed after their meal. The next day, during burial, they interred the deceased. Their work was cut out for them, and no one who was not part of them from the beginning could jump in at the middle. Some families wanted the graves plastered and a tombstone erected. The gang had Ngulu, whom they entrusted with the writings on the wet tombstones. He summarized the lives of the deceased in names, dates, and Bible verses. His hand was so neat that Luca joked that the tombstone imprint looked like love letters to the dead. The gang did a good job on the graves. They were always considered whenever someone died in machine. Luca loved the job. It was a calling, the last thing that made him feel important in machine. People sought him out when they wanted the services of his gang, and the mourners waited respectfully as he directed his boys in the burial process. He felt alive at these moments, a kind of aliveness that denied him the desire to be anything else than a gravedigger. These moments helped him accept the uselessness of life. He had put some of Machine's richest into holes, seemingly tinier than the lives they had lived, where they were left to rot and be forgotten by a busy world. Hannah knew she had lost. With Adisa's death, her plan to engage Luca in the cooking job wouldn't go far. She didn't give up, though. When she returned home from work that evening, she prepared tilapia and ugali, Luca's other favorite. She had bought new battery cells for his radio, and tonight it was clearer and louder, filling in the gaps between their clipped chatter as they munched and sucked on fish bones. Hannah made her next move. I was thinking I should buy a bicycle when I get paid this month. Yes, Gade explained, throwing fists up. I will ride it to school. Uh-uh, Hannah shook her head. This is for your father to help him start the maze trade he has always wanted to start. Luca stopped chewing and gazed at her in shock. Whatever had entered her was like rain coming straight from heaven. That's what you've always wanted, Hannah said, looking at him. But for how long have I asked for this? He feigned annoyance to mask his excitement. But at last, it's coming now. Yeah, at least now we won't need to borrow from neighbors every time we need to go to Posho Mill, Kasali said. The banter at the evening table rotated around the coming bicycle. Hannah marveled at how Luca and the children were excited about it. She scaled up her plot. Adisa's death is so disturbing, she turned to Luca. She died like a dog. Oh, that one, yeah? 
Something tells me that something will go wrong about Adisa's burial. When a man kills his wife like that, but Luca looked absorbed with the white soft flesh that he was sucking from the fish bones. If I were you, I wouldn't take that job. Luca glanced at her and then went back to sucking fish bones. Later, when they were in bed, she told him she would not only buy the bicycle, but also give him the money he needed to start the business. In return, she needed him to keep off the grave digging business. For the next two days before Adisa's burial, a serious dilemma grated Luca's mind. He could act sick for his gang to excuse him from a job they were already booked for, but he couldn't leave his gang without a shepherd. They would be lost without him. After the burial, he returned home drunk every evening, ready to sleep and escape Hannah's hostile eyes and demented silences. Her loathing had soared to crazy heights, and she no longer bothered to keep food for him. He didn't buy any anyway. At least, she left the door unlocked so he could let himself in when he came home late. He woke up very hungry on the third day after the burial. Everyone had left and the tea kettle on the table in the sitting room was as empty as his stomach. He sat down on a folding chair and contemplated what to cook. Then Nyanji knocked. At first, Luca thought it was just the plastering of Adisa's grave that Nyanji wanted. I need her spirit bound. And if you and your men can help, I will give you whatever you will ask. Adisa has been returning? Yes, said Nanji. You are asleep. You hear her walking, calling people. Yesterday, we found the sitting room rearranged and the child who sleeps on her mat in our room was sleeping in the sitting room. Your second wife's daughter? Yes, she was there on her mat. She didn't hear anything? Nyanji shook his head. Adisa's grave needed to be dug up and her remains burnt. That would bind her spirit. Luca asked for 10,000 and Nanji agreed without haggling. Then Luca realized he had asked for too little and regretted it, but too late. He should have asked for more so that after paying his gang, he could be left with enough to buy himself the bicycle that Hannah was trying to bribe him with. Later in the evening, the gang arrived at Nanji's home, high on Guli, to steel their nerves against the delicate assignment ahead of them. Nanji handed them shovels and hoes, and they began moving the dirt out of the grave. They worked fast, their tools crunching the wet soil, even as they ensured the loose soil didn't spread far so that nobody would later on sense the grave had been tampered with. As they worked, Nanji paced about in the dark from one end of the compound to another, watching out for any unwanted eyes that may be passing. Halfway to the coffin, they began to focus on the end where the head lay. They now entered in turns, one person at a time. They scooped and scooped and puffed Nguli to numb their tensed nerves. At last, Michael scrapped soil off the coffin's surface. He found the handle of the wooden lid and slid it back. The darkness beyond the glass mortified him. He stopped. He couldn't stand the thought of Adisa's decomposing face glaring at him. This was the eighth grave they were invading for such a mission. But tonight's tension was different. He hopped out of the grave. 
You've broken the glass? Luca asked. No. You've left it for who? Gulu asked. You go break it, Maiko snapped. You think I am a coward like you? Gulu said and jumped inside. His feet landed squarely on the glass, crashed it and his shoes skidded on some fleshy, slippery surface. Vayayi, he exclaimed and jumped out. Soon, a rotten stench hit their nose and Maiko spat. Who spat? Mwale asked, pinching his nose, and followed the rest as they fled the stench. They stood a distance away, near the gate, where they watched Nanji accompany a limping old man to the half-open grave. Luca felt uneasy and wondered why the nguli he smoked wasn't relieving him as it had done during similar assignments. Perhaps Hannah was right. If he had not taken the job, he would be in bed next to her, asleep with her bum pressed to his groin. The limping man by the graveside pelted stuff into the hole and mumbled a strange language. A crying feminine voice rose from the hole, answering the old man's rants. That's Adisa's voice, all right, Maiko whispered. Shh, Luca elbowed him, suppressing the urge to bolt away. Go to Hannah and tell her that she was right. He shouldn't have taken this job, but for the gang's sake, he couldn't back out. Not now. Nanji emptied a jerry can of petrol into the grave. Soon, its smell pervaded the still air of the dark evening. He then threw a lit matchstick into the grave. An instant fire blazed from the hole, its orange flame illuminating the darkened compound. Nanji and the old man disappeared. As the fire ate the coffin wood in pop sounds and hisses, its tongues gushing in and out of the grave. That's who crying? Maiko asked. Where? Luca turned to him. At the grave. I'm hearing it also, Gulu said. Tenje, are you hearing anything? Luca asked. No. Before the fire died down, they returned to the grave and began refilling it. They worked fast in silence, with rolls of Nguli dangling from the edges of their mouths. They tried hard to restore the grave to its fresh looks. Such a daunting task considering the darkness they worked in. Thereafter, they hobbled to Mangele's place to drown the rest of their night in Changa before each man went to his home in the early morning hours. Hannah woke up early to help the children prepare for school. The boil on her groin had swollen to its ripe fullness but had yet to break. It was now much harder to walk properly and she had taken the day off. She couldn't go back to bed, though, because of Luca's snoring and the overwhelming stench of Changa. She resigned to warm herself by the fireside as she waited for the sun to fully come out. Shrill screams from the east of Machine plucked her from her seat. In that quiet morning, the wail sounded as if they were from the next compound. Hannah was among those who followed the cries to Ngulu's homestead. Everyone was headed there, alarm wrinkled on their face. Who had died? Everyone asked the other. Nobody seemed to know better until they reached Ngulu's home. A crowd stood around the mango tree in the backyard when Ngulu dangled from a rope that stretched from a branch. As people mused the meaning of it all, news flowed in from across the village. Maiko had gone mad. Hannah joined half of the crowd which left the dangling Ngulu to go and witness the spectacle of a deranged Maiko. They found him bound with a nylon rope, which he struggled to bite loose, 
but it had instead torn the edges of his mouth, and now his lips were bloody. He cursed the onlookers in demonic tongues and occasionally called the names of villagers long dead. The two incidents had shaken Machine out of its daily groove, but what happened an hour later made everyone believe these incidents were not coincidental. Many suspected it was the grave-digging job they had done for Adisa. It wasn't wise to take it, considering Nanji was blamed for the death. Nanji must be the one deflecting his deceased wife's restless spirit to Luca's gang. After Mwale's wife returned home from Maiko's place, she found her husband hiding under their blanket. And when she pulled the blanket from him, he was shaking. He gazed about with the frightened eyes of a cornered rat. Then he dashed out, wearing only his pants, she caught up with him at the banks of River Nzoya, hiding behind a bush. When Hannah heard of this, she ran home, but stopped at the door of her bedroom, scared that waking the slumbering Luca would produce the same results. She left him asleep and sent for Amakobe in the distant Mtoni village. The renowned Amakombe would know what to do. As she waited for Amakombe, she locked the door and sat outside where she kept hordes of nosy neighbors away from her man. He is fine. He has gone to check on Maiko, she lied, so as to shoo them away. By 11, Hannah feared for the worst. However drunk Luca was when he returned home, he never stayed in bed beyond eight. He woke up and went looking for more changa to unlock his hangover, but she let him snore on, she wasn't ready to face a mad husband. A grave-digging husband was better. He woke up before midday and vomited beside the bed. Hannah rushed to the bedroom, opened the wooden window and studied him. He wiped his mouth on the blanket and lay his head next to the bed's edge. He began to doze off. Amakombe is coming and we have to cook you in herbs, Hannah said. He flattered his eyes open and pinched his face straining from the light. Cook herbs for me? Why? To stop me from doing my job? That I can't stop you. Have I not failed all these years? Perhaps you should be happy that your next job is on your friend's graves. Luca sat up, swung his feet off the bed, but froze when he felt his trouser and shirt were wet. He'd peed on himself. It had never happened before. And I don't know who you will do the job with because Maiko and Mwale have gone mad. And Tenje is where? He sprang up, scrubbing his face with his hands as he started out. You're going where? To find Tenje. Looking this way? Hannah followed him into the sitting room. His crinkled shirt and trouser had a huge wet map of urine. You're going nowhere. She grabbed him, shoved him out of the way and planted herself at the door. Then, Amakombe knocked. For a grizzled old man, he was still very strong for his age, cycling all the way accompanied only by his youthful apprentice, who had also cycled here. The apprentice carried a dark brown leather bag containing the tools of their trade. Sit down, young man, Amakombe ordered, entering. Luca wouldn't have obeyed had Tenje not burst in at that moment, crying like a woman. He indeed paced about the sitting room like a woman in labor. Luca, Luca, he cried. Why did you do this to us? Why have you finished us like this? 
Amakombe ordered them to sit down. Tenje sat next to Luca, writhing on the seat as if he had a stomach upset, while Luca gazed ahead, trying to ignore him. You've finished us! We are done with! Tenje mourned. Hannah heard him from the kitchen where she fasts in the hearth to get Amakombe some boiled water. Shortly, a neighbor stormed in, panting. She announced that Mwale had died with a froth of blood foaming at his mouth. Tenje flew out. Luca attempted to follow him, but the apprentice held him back. Let me be, Luca yelled, struggling to get loose. Look at you, Amakombe yelled, smelling of urine like an uncircumcised boy. Makwata, he called his apprentice, but glaring at Luca. Let him free, and we shall see who he will blame when he walks back here mad. The apprentice released Luca, but Amakombe's words held him. Get your clothes off, Amakombe ordered, as the apprentice locked the door. As Luca unbuttoned, Hannah brought in a covered pot of hot water and placed it where Amakombe pointed with a finger. Luca was incensed at the sense of triumph that shone in Hannah's face when their eyes met. After Luca stripped naked, Amakombe showed him where to sit on the floor. The apprentice opened the leather bag and pulled banana wrappings from it and arranged them on the floor. He then plucked a blade from a side pocket and passed it over to Amakombe. The medicine man picked one of the banana wrappings, smelled it, and ripped it open with the knife. He crawled next to Luca and asked, You ready? Luca stared. Be a man, lift your arms. Luca bared his ribcage to him. He jerked with every cut Amakombe made along his ribs and winced as Amakombe rubbed the medicine into his flesh. The seven cuts took a lifetime to complete. Amakombe then pulled the pot next to Luca's feet, uncovered it and threw a blanket over Luca. No fumes escaped the blanket trap. Luca sneezed and coughed and struggled to lunge out for fresh breath, but Makwata was too much for him. Good, Amakombe smiled. The struggle tells you the medicine is entering. Hannah couldn't believe it was happening, and as she stood there watching, she felt some sticky wetness in her pants. Between her legs, the ripe boil had broken loose. It must have happened as she ran about preparing the hot water. Tears of double relief streaked down her cheeks. I hope you enjoyed this reading of The Grave Diggers of Machine by Nyasili Atetwe. I really hope, or at least the romantic in me hopes, that this scary and traumatic event brings Hannah and Luca together, that they may find their groove and thrive as a couple. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cafe Curiosity. Please share your thoughts by DMing me at Lorraine Mutambiranwa on Instagram. You can listen to more episodes of the podcast on our website, cafecuriosity.co.za, on Google, Apple, and Spotify. Remember to share Cafe Curiosity far and wide. Till next time, I wish you open-hearted abundance. <music>